0: I love you. I have permitted myself to say choirs, as if the late birds sang in branches. When for them, in the dusk at windset, the garage eve yields its watercup. Not for us the paling light, the white urn at the driveway, nor for us the palmettos and the squeak of tiles. The fountain at noonday cries, you are not here. And the sea, at its distance, calls to a single path, flanked by hibiscus. The sea reminds itself each day that it is solitary, and the bather gambles in the waves as a suicide who says, Tomorrow is another, an hour in the wrecker foam. I love you. I am writing your name as if I were a Trojan, who expected someone else to smooth the shore of souls, who said, To the great reaches of wave and salt, I am replenishing as a light falling on a single tree, and it is wonderful, like ice on a flow. I love you. Miracle, mirror, word. All the same, you come, you go. I love you. On my rioting lawns, the plaster flamingos can even endure your wonder. Hello, and welcome to Words That Burn, a podcast about poetry. Each week, I read a poem, look at its inner workings, and hopefully show you what makes it tick. This week's poem is Dido to Aeneas by Barbara Guest. Before I begin today, I have two suggestions. Firstly, try to find a copy of the poem somewhere so that you can read along. It makes things just that little bit easier, and you'll definitely need it with this week's poem. Secondly, this is a quick warning that there is a small mention of suicide within the poem, which itself is based on a famous death within Roman antiquity. I'm just letting you know in case topics like that might be sensitive for you. If you found yourself enjoying the reading this week, but were left utterly confused in the wake of it, try not to worry too much. That is often guests' intention. This is easily the most densely packed and confusing of the poems I've covered so far on this podcast. So why on earth would Guest be so willing to confuse her audience? Why code a poem in so much ornate language that the meaning of it becomes lost in beauty? She's often aiming to create a form of literature known as ekphrasis, or, put more simply, a literary representation of visual art. Guest was a member of the New York School of Artists and Poets in the 1940s. I've mentioned them on this podcast before. It began life as a collective of visual artists and a school of thought, which went on to influence the St. Mark's Poetry Project. Guest is part of the first generation, and rather unique among their members as she started as a painter then transitioned into poetry. Her love of painting would remain an enduring influence on her poetry throughout her career, leading her to pen what some have called literary homages to famous works of art. Her work focuses less on clear discernible meaning and more on creating a moment of beauty and subsequent reaction to that from her audience. This focus on imagery and the visual is clear from the opening lines of this poem. I love you. I have permitted myself to say choirs. As if the late birds sang in branches, when for them, in the dusk at windset, the garage eve yields its water cup, not for us the paling light, the white urn at the driveway, nor for us the palmettos and the squeak of tiles. Those first lines, I love you, are among the strongest a human being can utter, and so the reader's attention is demanded right from the start. There is a struggle established in this poem with the words, I have permitted myself to say choirs. They leave a question hanging in the air. Why was there a restriction in the first place? The scene of this poem is then set. A late dusk evening and birds singing as the sun dips. The language of conflict raises itself again in the line, The garage eve yields its water cup. Yields being a classic word for submission or surrender. Then we understand that there seems to be some kind of lost disgust not for us the paling life. There is something amiss, something the pair refer to in us are forbidden to have. Is it happiness, contentment, love? From here, we see that the scenery of the poem becomes jumbled and contrasting. The white urn is oddly ancient, and completely at odds with the modern driveway mentioned just after. Much of this is easily explained by simply referring to the title, Dido to Aeneas. The poem is an address, a lament, to Aeneas. The strange, modern versus ancient language fits perfectly into the tale of these two ancient lovers. Dido was the Queen of Carthage in the ancient epic The Aeneid by Virgil. She is destined to meet and fall in love with Aeneas, the hero for whom the epic is named. Sadly, it is not meant to be, and Aeneas leaves her for his sense of duty. This brief and objective analysis does nothing to speak to the depth of love actually exhibited by Dido in the Aeneid. She is seized by a kind of madness, a burning desire to be with Aeneas. She can do nothing to quell it. Throughout Book 4 of the Aeneid, constant references are made to burning, flame and fire. What use are prayers and shrines to a passionate woman? The flame was eating the soft marrow of her bones, and the wound lived quietly under her breast. Dido was on fire with love, and wandered all over the city in misery and madness, like a wounded doe, which a shepherd hunting in the woods of Crete has caught off guard. This comes directly from the Aeneid itself, and is a striking image of what love can do to a human. Ultimately, though, her love for Aeneas is not enough. He leaves the shores of Carthage to found Rome in a distant land. This partly explains the copious amounts of oceanic imagery found later in the poem. Dido, in her despair, both over Aeneas leaving and her own sense of neglected duty, falls on his sword, ending her own life. Aeneas watches as her funeral pyre burns while his ships sail away. The ultimate message of book four of the Aeneid was summed up by Virgil himself. Love is a cruel master. And in a sense, it can be used to discover the message of Guest's own poem. This heavy leaning on classical education is something that would crop up time and time again in Barbara Guest's work. She and her contemporaries in the New York School would often write about the everyday, but would use mythic structures as a focal point. Guest admitted this in an interview with Charles Bernstein in 1995. We were not going to write about ordinary things, unless they were encased in extraordinary thought. On to the next section then. The fountain at noonday cries, You are not here and the sea at its distance calls to a single path flanked by hibiscus. The sea reminds itself each day that it is solitary, and the bather gambles in its waves as a suicide, who says, tomorrow is another, an hour in the wrecker foam. I love you. I am writing your name as if I were a Trojan, who expected someone else to smooth the shore of souls, who said to the great reaches of wave and salt, I am replenishing as a light, falling on a single tree, and it is wonderful, like ice on a flow. Here, water and its many forms become the primary analogy for Dido, and in turn, guests struggling love. The idea of struggle becomes apparent again. The cries of the fountain head a clear reference to the pain of not having her Aeneas with her. Whilst the next lines seem to be a bitter reminder that the speaker's lover is not present, or rather... Absent, either in body or mind. You are not here. In this section, there is a kind of parallel drawn between the isolation of the sea and the isolation of the speaker. Each day, their Aeneas is absent, and so they must remind themselves they have always been alone. This, to me, seems to be a form of defense, a barrier on the part of the speaker, a cold thought to stop them becoming dependent on the love of Aeneas. But the subsequent lines show just how futile this is. The bather gambles in its waves as a suicide who says, tomorrow is another, an hour in the wrecker foam. The Dido of this poem realizes that risk is her only option and she cannot play it safe. She cannot avoid this passion within her. And after all, all love is risk. The mention of suicide here is a direct callback to Dido's own story in the classic poem. The image of the wrecker foam is a powerful one. The sheer risk of combat with this elemental force is made clear through its name. Then, a refrain, or repeating line, is established using the very first line of the poem, We hear again, I love you. Refrains are used to really add weight to the primary message of a poem. Guest uses it here to show that no matter how desperate or maddened her struggle with this relationship may be, she does love this person. The speaker then reproaches herself for idolization of this Aeneas. She is writing his name as if I were a Trojan. Aeneas, in the Aeneid, is the last hope for the survivors of the fall of Troy. He was their literal saviour, the man anointed by the gods to smooth the shore. All Trojans look to him for assurance, leadership, and above all, deliverance to their promised land, Rome. Guest mimics this need for a saviour seeing her Aeneas as a way to complete herself, to give her something, a sense of security, or a deliverance from the mundane, perhaps. This idea of reverence is driven home in the almost biblical line, I am replenishing as a light falling on a single tree. The words a single tree could refer to the speaker, the lone individual to whom this Aeneas belongs. She speaks of someone who said this to smooth the shore of souls, The words of this Aeneas, then, are like a balm. Something to soothe her own worries, her anxieties. She speaks of its calming effect by saying it's wonderful, like ice on a flow. Moving to the close of the poem, the refrain is sounded again. I love you. Miracle. Mirror. Word. All the same, you come, you go. I love you. On my rioting lawns, the plaster flamingos can even endure your wonder. It's difficult to tell. Whether the speaker is referring to the phrase, I love you, or to their Aeneas, when they say miracle, mirror, word. To me, the poet is saying that her admission of love for this person is a miracle. That this Aeneas is their mirror, and the word referenced is more akin to that of some kind of gospel, as opposed to a mere phrase. Yet despite this adoration, this devotion to the man, He comes and goes as he pleases, directly mimicking the actions of the ocean Guest was just writing about. No matter her commitment, his own is lacking. This bittersweet, unrequited love is a direct reference to the ending of the tale in the Aeneid. No matter what Dido does, what compromise she seeks to strike, what sacrifice she is willing to make, Aeneas leaves all the same. The refrain comes again, I love you to remind us that even this will not shake or erode the speaker's love for him. The final image, placed in parentheses, is bizarre but important. On my rioting lawns, the plaster flamingos can even endure your wonder. These are references to the famous pink flamingo statues that have become synonymous with Florida in the United States, where this poem was written and set It's an attempt once more to grant a sense of contrast between the ancient language of a Roman epic and the then modern world of 60s America. There are numerous reasons that Guest might do this, but the most likely culprit is her desire to delimit the poem. The idea of delimiting is something she saw as timelessness through abstraction and cacophonous imagery. She wished to unbound and grant a near immortal sense to the poetry she was writing. The final line is a testament the near godlike quality of this poem's Aeneas, even inanimate objects can recognize how truly amazing he is. So, why did I choose this poem? There are two reasons. Firstly, it's one of the more unusual love poems I have come across. Its meaning and tone are not immediately evident on a first, second, or even third reading of it. Yet, for me, once it's deciphered, it seems to encapsulate the often bittersweet aspect of romance. There is the madness and burning consistency of adoration within its lines, and also that desperate feeling that comes when we cannot control our own feelings, no matter how hard we try. The second reason I chose it is because I think it's a perfect example of how the language of poetry can stand by itself as an object of beauty. The language in this poem sets itself apart from simpler verse. Guest was always considered to be one of the most elegant and lyrically advanced of the New York School. She herself said that her work strove to avoid literal meaning. In her own words, I think that poems that have direct meanings, that's a very dull poet. An extremely dull poet. And a person who is writing like he or she sees. That isn't what you're ever writing. You never write what you see. You see it. You just don't write it. You write something else. And there's always something else. And to me, this poem does an excellent job of writing about something that every human being has felt, but in a very different way to how it's been written about before. So, how did I do? Do you agree with my reading? Or am I completely wrong? I'd like to point out, as always, that this is my interpretation of the poem. And as such, it is very much up for debate. If you'd like to talk to me about it, or if you have a poem you'd like me to read on this podcast you can get in touch in loads of places. Send me an email at podcast at gmail.com Find me on Instagram at words that burn podcast, where I upload helpful study guides and bonus material. You can find the show notes for this episode at wordsthatburnpodcast.com If you've been enjoying this podcast so far, you could really help me out by leaving me a review or giving me a few stars on whichever platform you enjoy it on. This episode was written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. The music for this week's episode was provided by Kai Engel and is used under Creative Commons license. As always, I really appreciate you spending your time with me and hopefully you'll hear from me again soon.